0: Opportunity for finishing God's work, brethren, is growing short. I think a lot of you realize that as you see these things occurring. So we need to get ready. I want to read a couple of clippings uh, that I tore out, one of them just today, but one on the trip day before yesterday from the International Herald Tribune. And on the front page, a lot of you read these things here, but it talks about a bomber in a Kurd city kills at least 60 people. Erbil, Iraq. A suicide bomber pretending to be a job seeker blew himself up outside a police recruiting center in the Kurdish provincial capital. Of course, that's part of Iraq, you know. On Wednesday morning, killing at least 60 Kurds, most of them prospective policemen. About 150 were wounded as insurgents continue to seek to destabilize Iraq's new democratic government. And, of course, they're constantly trying to make sure that Iraq does not succeed and they do not have democracy. Then from our local paper right here uh, today, Saturday, May the 7th, we have this headline in Section 2 of the paper, As violence swells, so does the death toll. Bodies of 12 men found in dump at least 25 die in suicide bombings. So that's 37 plus others. Baghdad, Iraq. The death cold from a week of relentless insurgent attacks rose to nearly 300 Wednesday, or Friday, I'm sorry, intensifying pressure on Iraq's still incomplete government to act quickly to stem the mounting violence that threatens to engulf the country. In the latest challenges to the fledgling government's authority, the renegade cleric Muqtada al-Sadr threatened to revive his armed rebellion And the bodies of 12 men bound and shot in the head uh, were found in a garbage dump on the eastern edge of Baghdad. Uh, These wonderful religious leaders over there. uh, It's amazing what they can do in the name of religion. But at any rate, we see what's happening. And, of course, everything indicates we are not going to succeed in our quest to set up democracy throughout the Middle East. It's not going to work. I'll just tell you that very frankly. We're certainly not going to solve the problem in Jerusalem and in Israel. And we'll see that coming apart and coming apart and coming apart. And we will see, my brethren, Britain getting out of this European Union whether they do right away or it'll be another few years, they will get out. You mark my words. There is a great God in heaven who guides the rise and fall of nations, and that God is beginning to intervene on His timetable. Now, His timetable will be somewhat different from ours, but everyone I've talked to who has any interest in prophecy of the Bible, they all admit we've got to be near the end of the 6,000-year period. And if, of course... It is when we think it may be, then the tribulation would begin nine years from last month. Nine years from last month. If, the biggest two-letter word in the English language, <laughs> if we're right. And I've told people over and over, I don't base one ten-thousandth part of my salvation on anyone's dates, including these dates. I want to make that clear, but I just say we do need to realize time is short And these things are beginning to come together in a remarkable way. And being back in Europe again, that certainly was impressed on me very, very much. And I know we've got to do our part to get ready. Turn to Romans, if you would, chapter 13. Romans chapter 13 and beginning in verse 11. Paul writes, And do this, knowing the time that now it is high time to wake out of sleep. We do need to awake out of our sleep, brethren, Often we here in America go to sleep. When I was growing up, they had the war over in Europe in World War I and again in World War II, and we sang the song when I was a boy over there, over there. You know, we won't be back till it's over, over there. It's always been over there. It's not been here. And the Americans can't seem to realize how awesome it is, how imminent it is, and how it's going to hit us this time. It's not always going to be in Vietnam. It's not always going to be in North Korea or Iraq or somewhere over there. It's going to be right here next time because we have the time of weapons and delivery systems that have never been available in human history, and they're going to bring the war right here. So it's time to awake out of our sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent. Do we have less than nine years to finish the work of God? I don't know that. And you don't know that. It might be just six or eight. Or it might be 12 or 15. But we're getting very close. That's for sure. The night is far spent, the day is at hand, the day of Christ's coming, the day of God's intervention. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly or, of course, decently, as it says, as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in licentiousness and lewdness, not in strife and envy but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. And brethren, that's something we've all got to do. All of us need to do that more perfectly. These days of unleavened bread, we're picturing that. It's interesting the way this is worded. I've explained this before, but we need to go over these things again and again. It says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Have Christ living His life in you and make no provision... For the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Now that doesn't say don't make any provision for the flesh. You must make provision. God says, Six days shall you labor and do all your work. He expects you to work and to have a little bit of savings if you can, and of course to have some food and water ahead, as I've said, in case of emergencies, that kind of thing. But don't make any provision to fulfill its lusts. You who are single, should you be dating in such a situation that you find yourself alone in a house or apartment or somewhere like that with someone of the opposite sex? You say, oh, well, everyone does that. That's no big deal. Yes, it is a big deal. If you do that, you may find yourself committing fornication. You're allowing it to be so easy. What about smoking, as I've said? You know, you've heard me give this example, but let's do it again. The way to quit smoking is what? Just keep an extra couple of cigarettes in your pocket just in case. <laughs> no, throw all the cigarettes away. Throw your lighter, your matches away. Get everything connected with cigarettes out from you, out from your house. And try to stay away from other smokers as best you can. Cut yourself off. God says back in First Corinthians, you remember, flee fornication. Don't try to get right close to smoking. Don't get right close to heavy drinking if you're tempted that way and be around those who do and hang around bars. Don't get close to a situation that would bring you into fornication. If you're a fighter, you have a temper. Don't get in situations that would incite that situation. Whatever it is, flee. Flee fornication. Don't hang around. I'll always remember my friend Dr. Herman Hay back in 1950, just a few months after I came to college. I don't remember if I was baptized yet or not. I think it was, just barely, but very new. And Herman and Raymond Cole and I went along with Dick Armstrong and his uh, Plymouth convertible down to uh, Tijuana, and then we drove on through Tijuana in the daytime, saw a little bit of it, the mess, and then we went on down where it was a little bit nicer to Ensenada, which was a little bit more clean, and we stayed in a little hotel down there. And uh, but we had dinner that night in a Mexican uh, restaurant, sort of a cantina or whatever, where they had dancing, and it wasn't anything terribly lewd, but it was just the uh, worlds were swirling. And so Herman Hay literally took his chair and he just turned exactly opposite the beautiful dancing girls and he was looking at the wall (laughs) he made sure he wasn't going to be tempted by that he just looked completely away now they weren't doing any hula hula dance but he was just making right well sure the next morning some of us slept a little later herman grew up on the farm and he was always getting up real early of course with the with the birds with the uh, with the roosters and the chickens about five thirty or 6 he would always get up so he came running back to the hotel, and we were, he was out of breath and faced with a little red. He said, what's wrong, Herman? He had been out walking around, and he was accosted by some prostitutes. it's even that time of morning, it's amazing. Of course, you're accosted all the time down there, but usually at night. And so instead of hanging around and talking to these women, he literally ran. He was fleeing fornication. <laughs> I thought that was great. So uh, anyway, but uh, it's a good example. though no, Frank, it's a lot better to do that. Some of our young people laugh. go, oh, well, I wouldn't do that. Yeah, that's sure. But you better learn to think about it and flee fornication. Flee, get away from sin. We're at the end of an age. And we do need to do that as part of our preparation for the kingdom of God. Anyway, we want to make no provision. Don't be setting aside something or making a situation just in case. Just in case you might decide to go ahead and get drunk or commit fornication or smoke or whatever it is. Don't do that. Make no provision for the flesh. We're near the end of an age. The night is far spent. Notice Acts chapter 3, if you would, at this point. Turn to the third chapter of Acts. And here the apostle Peter is talking to the early Christians in verse 19. And, of course, all these Protestant people say, invite Jesus into your life. Just give your heart to the Lord. Peter said on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized. Here's Acts 3, verse 19. Repent. First word he says, don't invite Christ into your life. Repent. Repent. And then ask Christ to come in. But you've got to repent first. Be so sorry, so shaken, recognizing how weak you are and how awful sin is, that you deeply, fervently turn away from sin and go the other way. And then say, I'm really sorry. I'm going the other way. Lord Jesus, come into my life. I give my life to you. And then make sure you do surrender and give your life totally to God. Repent, therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus Christ who was preached to you before. For here was Christ just been resurrected now and up in heaven. And a few weeks later, Peter is preaching about Christ coming the second time. So Christ prayed that he may send Christ Jesus whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration. There is a great day coming as the old spiritual says. A great day is coming, the time of restitution or restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all, not some, of all his holy prophets since the world began. Every single prophet of God has talked about a coming government of God, a kingdom of God, a rule of God, the reign of Jesus Christ, the reign of the Messiah on this earth. That is the good news. Part of the good news, yes, is our our relationship with God through Jesus Christ and having our sins forgiven. We must not ever forget that. But the second part, it leads to our preparation for this great government to be set up. Let's think about preparing for our real future. That's what I'm talking about now the rest of this sermon. Prepare for your real future. And brethren, we do need to emphasize this thing. It's very basic, but I'll tell you, these things are speeding down on us, and a lot of our brethren don't get it. Many of our brethren in this room right here, and many of our brethren out there, many of you brethren around the world, you, I'm sure, just don't get it. You don't realize how real these things are. Sometimes my mind goes away, you know what I mean? I just grew up as a Protestant, and you get through the week, and everything seems, well, we're surrounded by the around And everything seems to be going along the same. And we can forget how close we are to where everything is going to change. And we had better be preparing to rule this earth under Jesus Christ. But no man is fit for command, as they tell you in the military. No man is fit to give orders unless he first learns to take orders. Each one of us has to take orders from God. And we've got to do that, of course, in the right way. It's surrender to God utterly and totally. So the times of restoring the government of God, the way of God, the whole society of God is soon going to be set up on this earth. It is indeed very, very real. Turn out to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm always turning there, but I will continue to do that. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 6, verse 1. Here again, the Apostle Paul dare any of you having a matter against another go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints how dare you go down the street and seem to have a lack of awareness that you are part of the church of the living god you are part of a, 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 a precursor of the coming government of god where god's government ought to be exercised within the church and we must be learning that form of government within the church And some people say, well, you're in charge, so it's easy for you to say that. All I can say is that for about 40 years, and the older brethren understand that, some of you here were, some of you were here a lot of that time, you saw me. And I was willing to submit to Mr. Armstrong and do what he said. And if he sent me off into exile, even though he was misunderstanding what happened, I just did it. I trusted in God. Several times, frankly, had that kind of thing happen. And God guided it for good, and it did work out for good. I learned lessons by that. And so we all need to do that. And if I were to die tomorrow or on one of these trips and some of these other men take over, you would do the same thing. I would hope you would follow that same pattern. I want my wife and children. I want you, Elizabeth, and you, John. I want you to be in this church where there is the right kind of government, not off where politics is being practice that people are voting people into office and what will you go along with and what will you go along with and all this kind of stuff this attitude why do you dare go down to the worldly judges and not before the saints do you not know that the saints will judge the world don't you know that's why we are here training to become kings and priests under Jesus Christ in a very few years maybe 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 just about another 12 years think about it we're getting very very close and we've got to understand perhaps christ's feet will be on this earth 12 years from this autumn and the tribulation will begin as i say nine years from this spring but we have to think about that the reality of that it ain't forever as we might say i don't want to use these uh Provincial expressions too often because then people think I don't know what to say. <laughs> but anyway, let's, let's realize that. Do you not know the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Can't you judge things in God's church? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? We in this room, you brethren in Perth, Australia, and there in Sydney and over across the way, uh, in New Zealand and in South Africa and all around the world. You shall judge angels if you overcome and if you make it into the kingdom of God. We shall judge angels. How much more things that pertain to this life? That's our calling, to make right decisions, to get wisdom, to get counsel, to think things through, to drink in of God's Word and feed on it. So we think like God. We think like Christ. And then we can rule like Christ would rule. We could get 50 sermons on this. I'm not finished with this topic, of course, but we'll cover part of it from time to time. If then you have judgment concerning things pertaining to this life, do you, it's a question mark, in other words, why do you appoint those who are least esteemed from the point of view of the church to judge? That is, they're not even in the church. He said, you're going down the street to carnal judges. I say this to your shame. Is it so that there's not a wise man among you, not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren? It's a rhetorical question indicating we ought to have people in God's church that are converted and dedicated and have wisdom to make those decisions. And as we go along toward the end, brethren, more and more of you men and women need to have that kind of wisdom and that kind of balance and that kind of dedication because in a few years you might be in charge of a city or five cities, or ten cities, or a whole nation, or perhaps, as Mr. Armstrong said, it's not definite and specific, of course, but some of us in this era, the Philadelphian era, may end up being like cabinet ministers. We would be secretary of the interior or secretary of this or that, helping manage the earth under Jesus Christ from Jerusalem directly, not just ruling a city off here and there. Revelation 3 could lend itself to that idea. Still, we would have to make that kind of decisions. We would have to decide what kind of government we're implementing and helping set up under Christ's direction. And so God wants us to prepare very, very much for that. The old Boy Scout motto, you know, be prepared. And that's what we need to do. Back in Luke chapter 19, notice now, brethren, in Luke chapter 19, verse 11, And this is a very important scripture, of course, very clear. The Sunday school uh, teachers just sort of read this and get sentimental, and they don't seem to take it seriously. Just like it's blah, 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 and doesn't have any meaning to them. Now, as they heard these things, Jesus spoke a parable, uh, another parable, because he was near Jerusalem, and because they thought, that is, his disciples, that the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Now, that are two different things. We can learn several things from this. Obviously, he didn't think the kingdom of God was something set up in your heart. You see, the Protestants say, oh, it's just a warm feeling on your heart. John Wesley had this wonderful experience at this church in London one day, and he had one evening, and he had this warm feeling come in his heart. And, of course, he thought, and many of the Protestants did this kind of a warm feeling, is your conversion, and the kingdom of God is a warm feeling on your heart, or something like that. Of course a lot of Protestants think or they're Pentecostals and we encountered some people that have been involved in that on our trip, I won't go into that, but they lust after speaking in tongues. It's very hard to break out of that. Very hard to break out of that because they could get these feelings which are from evil spirits quite often, and they want to holler blah 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 blah, blah and then begin to thrash and then their eyes roll back in their head. And as one lady said, who had been part of that, they fall backward. And when you look in the Bible, people fall backward, of course, when they're under the influence of the devil, not forward. Jesus came and fell forward on his knees before God, and so did David, and so did others. When you're struck and you fall backward, remember when Christ, just as these uh, men, Judas Iscariot, and these Roman soldiers... There may have been 50 or 75, a great big band way outnumbering his apostles. They didn't know for sure how many would be there. Maybe over 100 men with spears and knives came out to grab Jesus. And John's account tells this. Other accounts, you have to put all four accounts together. Jesus was not afraid. He was human. He hated to be crucified. He prayed all night before and sweat blood, great drops of blood. When the time came, what did he do? Run and hide? He said, who are you seeking? Jesus. And Jesus said, I am he. I am the I am is an expression in a sense that could have meant that, of course. And what did they do? They fell backward. Remember that? They fell backward. God struck them down on their back. These Pentecostal people hoop and holler and scream, glory, glory, glory. And they get all ecstatic in their utterances and their yelling. And, and gibberish, it, doesn't, it is not a real language at all. Speaking in tongues is speaking in a foreign language intelligently. But at any rate, the kingdom of God is a real government, not just a warm feeling or speaking in gibberish or whatever. A real government. They thought it would appear immediately, a real government. Therefore, Jesus gave them this parable to help them understand how and was going, when it was going to come and what it involved. Jesus said, a certain nobleman, just a parable, but it shows what's going to happen. Of course, it's picturing clearly Jesus Christ going to heaven and receiving the kingdom and coming back again. A certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called ten of his servants. And, of course, God had called a number of us and a number of his people back then, delivered to them ten minas, ten measures of money. We would say ten... Uh, maybe 10 $100 bills or something. And he said, Do business. Use this money wisely. Do business till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We will not have his man to reign over us. Remember, that's what the Jews said to... Uh, some of the, of the Israelites at least said to Moses, we're not going to have this man reign over us. They often don't like God's servant at first until he's proved by God, and then they still don't like him. Most people, and many times they tried to stone Moses and Aaron to death, and God had to stop them and intervene. When Christ came, they did finally kill him. And so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he would given the money, to be called to him that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Each one had been given ten, one hundred dollar bills. Maybe back at a time the dollar bill was worth five or ten times what it is today. Then came the first saying, Master, your mina has earned ten minas. This man had really been zealous in using the time and the talents and the situation in which he found himself. And brethren, unto whom much is given, of him much shall be required. All of you need to realize that. Some of you were called later on. I think I told you how the one of the first men I ever baptized, I was 21 years old, and Mr. A.M. Coffin, his name was spelled like a coffin, you put a dead man in. A.M. Coffin was 84 years old. Well, of course, I was pretty young, and I couldn't resist the humor of the situation. He was not only old enough to be my grandfather, my great-grandfather, but, of course, he was I thought about to reach the coffin, but we, his name was Coffin. That was bad humor. I didn't kid about it at the time, but I thought about it. The evil mind of man. <laughs> but he was a nice man, and I loved him. I just thought, well, boy, he's really old, and his name is Coffin. But I baptized him. And he came on into God's church and flew all the way out to Pasadena and I had the privilege of showing him around and helping him go out the Northwest Valleys around Calabasas and places that are all built up today to purchase some purebred Nubian goats because he had a millionaire sponsoring him and he wanted to sell this purebred Nubian goat milk to this local uh, veterans hospital to help these veterans. He had an outflowing concern and he came to the feast for several years until he died. He must have been eighty six or 90 years old when he finally died but he was a fine man but he didn't have the opportunity i had here he died a few years later maybe about the time i had been in the ministry just three or four years then i lived on and on and on and on and now i've been in the ministry nearly 53 years and here he went to sleep what's the difference in our reward am i going to be rewarded a hundred times more or maybe 20 times more because they've served so much longer? Not necessarily. Maybe he did with what he had to do with. Listen, maybe he did more than I am doing because he was called later on in life and he did not have an education particularly. I think he'd finished, he wasn't ignorant, but he didn't certainly have any college. I guess he'd finished high school, but his grammar was not too good. And he was just sort of an educated fellow, but very good attitude. And uh, so what is his reward? If that old man had so much zeal and so much outflowing concern that he had the dedication and the courage to get this fellow to sponsor him and fly all the way out to Pasadena, California, from Texas, where he'd never been before, and help these people, you know, and he did other things like that, no doubt, that God may reward him more then He rewards some of our leading ministers. God judges, as you know, with what we do, with what we have to do with. Maybe I should turn. Uh, uh, trouble is, I may forget where that is. I sort of remember, but I better not chance it. Anyway, there is a verse right here in Luke that tells us that. So uh, I want to, uh, you to realize that. Each of you needs to do what you can with what you have to do with. That includes the circumstance. You know, in other words, you're brought up in a certain kind of family. You are able to have a certain amount of education before you're called. And if you're called young, you can do a lot better because you still have a chance to change and to grow a lot more than A.M. Coffin, who was baptized at age 84. I remember it because I remember him being exactly, you know, four times my age. So he was 84. He obviously didn't have near as much time, you see. And the energy that I had. The physical and mental energy, he didn't have as much of that. And the capacity you have in other ways. God takes all those factors into consideration. Each one needs to do the best he can with what he has to do with. But Jesus wanted to know how much each had gained by trading. And so the first came saying, Master, your miner has earned ten minas. I've increased what you gave me ten times. In other words, I have helped in the work, we'd say today... I have been zealous and doing my part in the work. I've loved others. I've loved my neighbors. I, I love my wife. I've taught my children. I've been a good worker in my job. I've had outflowing concern. I've overcome my bad habits. I've grown in grace and in knowledge. And through my, my life, and my service, my impact, I have accomplished. And so God looks on that. Your mining has earned ten mines. He said, well done, good servant, because you were faithful in very little... Anything we do in this life is so tiny, brethren, compared to what we will have later. There's no comparison. Have authority over ten cities. And the second came saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. So he would grown, of course, and increased his, and that was fine. And Jesus said to him, You also be over five cities. Now, you're rewarded proportionately with how much you accomplish, how much you overcome, how much you grow depending on what you have to do with the course. And another came saying, Master, here is your mind in which I've kept hidden away a handkerchief, for I feared you. Notice it. This was the same Jesus Christ. This man had no reason to feel that way about him, except it was in the man's heart. He didn't have a right attitude because he wanted to do his own thing And when you want to do your own thing and you sense the minister may be ready to correct you, then you kind of withdraw and think, well, it's kind of hard here. You get up your defenses. That's what this fellow had. He got up his defenses. I've I've kept your money in a handkerchief. For I feared you. You're an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And Jesus said to him, or the Lord, out of your own mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man. Why then did you not put my money to the bank that I might at least have it with interest. That shows, of course, humanly, it's not wrong to get some interest in a bank. You're not supposed to take usury, you know, from your brother. You're not supposed to charge your brother high rates of interest, and it's better not to charge them at all. There might be some time you would, but certainly not usury in the sense of high interest. But it's all right to do that for the bank. And so he said to those who stood by, take the miner from him. This man has a bad negative attitude. I can't do anything. It's too hard and God is too strict and blah, blah, blah. And so he wasn't going to surrender to God and put his trust in God to take care of him fairly. He would not put his faith and trust in God. Take it away. But they said, and give it to him who has ten miners. And the fellow had the most. Why would you give it to the fellow that had the most? Because that fellow had gone all out. Whatever you do, do with your might. The fellow who had ten minus had more, gone all out. He'd worked even harder. His shoulders spiritually were even broader. And he was able to handle the increased responsibility better than even the fellow who'd just got five minus. For I say to you that to everyone who has will be given, and from him who does not have... Even what he has will be taken away from him. You see, we in America, we think, well, we're supposed to have this kind of a democratic feeling, and so you should have given the extra to the fellow with five minus. There's supposed to be equal distribution, communism, everyone has the same. No, God does not do that. Your creator does not do that. He rewards some a lot more if they accomplish a lot more. That's not wrong. But God is the judge, and he will reward us according to what we do with what we have to do with. And that's a very important principle. Now it comes in my mind, sometimes when I'm real tired, which I am a little disoriented with this uh, jet lag. It's back in in, uh, Luke 12, what I was going to give you about how God judges. And it says here in verse 47... The servant who did knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know, a person who did not know about the truth or not called yet, yet committed things worthy of stripes, shall be beaten with few. And, of course, we know the rest of the story. He'll be even resurrected in the great white throne judgment if he didn't know anything at all. For everyone to whom much is given, notice this, Luke 12, verse 48, god's way of judging for everyone to whom much is given if you have much time you're called as a young man my son jonathan is still a young man he's just 23 years old he has his whole life ahead of him he can grow and change and accomplish a great deal some of you are getting really old well, i'm concerned about mr crockett he's getting really old I'm kidding now. I'm persecuting my friend. I hope he's still my friend after that. <laughs> <Anyway>. <laughs> so he doesn't have as much time to change. But a young man does. I should pick on Mr. Ames. He's more used to my humor, I think. <laughs> anyway, so anyway, if you're younger, you have more of a chance to change and to grow than an older person. But uh, for everyone to whom much is given from him shall much be required. And to whom much has been committed of him, they will ask the more. God expects more if you've been given more time, more talents, more opportunities. And sometimes you're limited by circumstances. Maybe as a child you lost both legs and you're sitting in a wheelchair. Uh Uh-oh, what do you do then? Well, of course, you know, you've seen the examples of some of these people in wheelchair races and do this and that, and they accomplish a great deal, frankly. And in their spiritual life, they might accomplish more than someone that has both legs. You know examples like that. They go after it. They're zealous. They make up the difference in other ways. So God looks on the heart, and he looks on what you do with what you have to do with. But if you're born in a poor family, you never got much education, or you lost an eye or both eyes, or you're, you know, like uh, Helen Keller, uh, you're born deaf and blind and things like that, wow, you couldn't accomplish quite as much, could you, in, in certain ways? Of course not. But God judges fairly, and that's a good thing for all of us to realize so we need to think about using our time, our talents, our energy, our ability, going out of the circumstances, rising above those circumstances, and giving our lives to God every way we possibly can, so that we can be a king and a priest, a glorified spirit being in the coming family of God. What a wonderful opportunity that's going to be. Turn back to Ezekiel chapter 36, if you would, brethren. Ezekiel chapter 36. And notice here, Ezekiel 36, verse 24. Here, Christ is talking about... This is actually Christ, of course, inspiring these books, not just God the Father, talking about bringing our people back from the coming great tribulation. He says in verse 22, Therefore, say to the house of Israel... So he's talking to our people. Verse 24, For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of the countries, and bring you into your own land. When is that going to be? Not too far off. Maybe just 12 or 14 years from now that will happen. Not too far off. And then he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from your idols. All over Europe, you see these idols. We went into some churches over there, of course, just filled with idols. And some of these women turning from these uh, little alcoves, praying, you know, and so forth. Tears in their eyes. And they're praying to to just hunks of rock or wood, praying to idols. We have them all over, plus the other things we make idols of. We Americans make idols of our television. We've got to have two televisions and two cars and two this and three that and so on. And God's going to take away our idols. Anything we make an idol of is going to have to go. And a lot of those things are going to have to go anyway. How big will your cave in Petra be? How many televisions are going to be there for you? How many channels will be available? (laughs) Think about it. He's going to take it all away. So get used to it. Think about it. So God is going to gather us and bring us back. And I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. He's going to completely change these people. I will take the heart of stone, your hard-headedness, we say today. A heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. He'll soften your heart to where you'll say, yes, sir, yes, Lord, not my will, but thine be done. And you'll really mean it. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. As I've explained, brethren, we need to go back and study those statutes deuteronomy 12 through 28 those whole chapters contain god's statutes and the central areas of the books of leviticus and numbers the same way and of course exodus has a brief description of them exodus chapters 21 22 and 23 briefly list some of god's statutes they're more completely listed in deuteronomy so he was going to cause us to walk in the ten commandments his law But also his law is magnified in the letter, so to speak, in the statutes. And then as we understand the statutes spiritually and how they would be carried out in principle, then it gives us more of the mind of God, the way God wants us to live. You will walk in my statutes. Among God's statutes are tithing, as you know. Among God's statutes are the holy days. Yes, God's statutes are still binding. They're spiritually magnified. We don't carry them all out in the letter, just like they did. But in principle, they're all here. And you shall keep my judgments. We're called to be kings, and we're going to have to execute judgments based on God's mind, God's practice, God's judgments, and do them. Then you'll dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. So he tells about this and how that's going to happen. And then he says in verse 34, You'll remember your evil ways, your deeds that were not good, as I'm bringing you back from the slave camps. And you will loathe yourselves. You're going to be so sorry. Oh, God, I wish I had listened. A lot of people are going to think. You'll loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. And so, the land, finally, in verse 35, that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. He's going to bless them. The time of restoration of all things. The beautiful Garden of Eden type whole world, but with God's kingdom, God's government, God's laws set up. And us administering them, as you know, under Jesus Christ. Then you turn to chapter 37, if you would. Ezekiel 37 and uh, let's begin reading here in verse 21. Say uh, to them, I'm sorry, this verse 21, Then say to them, God says here, to the house of Israel, Thus says the eternal God, Surely I will take the children of Israel, this is all talking about the time of the end, this coming restoration, from among the nations, wherever they've gone, and gathered them from every side, and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation. We're not going to have any anti-Semitism hating the Jews and the British being jealous of the Americans, and the Americans being jealous of the British, or anything like that either, on the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be king over them all. That ultimate king, of course, is Jesus Christ, the king of kings. But the immediate king over the twelve tribes is King David, resurrected from the dead. One king, and they shall no longer be two nations, that is, the house of Israel and the house of Judah, They'll be made one nation, nor shall they ever be divided again into two kingdoms. They'll not defile themselves with their idols or testable things or anything. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. And verse 24, David, my servant, shall be king over them. And they shall all have one shepherd. And they shall also walk in my judgments, here it is again, and observe my statutes. God's statutes revealed in Deuteronomy 12 through 28. God's statutes and do them a whole way of life. And he says at the bottom of verse 25, My servant David shall be their prince forever. So think about it, brethren. You all know these things, but a very real government is about to be set up. Christ will be king of kings over the whole world under God the Father, but he'll be here ruling from a throne in Jerusalem. Then sitting right down the hall, so to speak, probably, the same place, close by, I'm sure, under Christ's direction will be King David, ruling over the whole house of Israel, all 12 tribes. Then under David, each one of the 12 apostles, Matthias having replaced Judas who fell away, the 12 apostles will each rule over one of the tribes of Israel. And then some great human leader now made spirit ...under Jesus Christ, like David over Israel, perhaps Daniel, Mr. Armstrong felt, who helped guide the greatest Gentile kingdom of all. We're not saying that for sure, but it could be. Daniel may be put as like David over the Gentiles, and guiding and orchestrating their development, you see, in the coming kingdom of God set up on this earth. And so we're going to interact with King David. We're going to interact with Daniel... And we're going to interact, of course, with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, God's servants of old. We're going to interact with Moses, who may have a great overall, like a Supreme Court justice or something, at the very highest level under Jesus Christ, as it was in ancient Israel. And we're going to interact with the twelve apostles, all of us. And we will see those men, and we will see those godly women, such as Sarah, the wife of Abraham, who is a very righteous woman, Ruth, who put her life in God's hands, and other women like that, they will be there. Spirit beings, no doubt, in the kingdom of God, the coming government of God set up on this earth. Spirit beings, we won't be male and female, will be composed of spirit. They will not be marriage, so we won't be like a woman ruling in that sense, but women will be made spirit. We will all be made spirit, but the character, the wisdom, the dedication, the capacity... That we have developed in this life can enable us to rule over five cities over ten cities perhaps over a whole nation and i think you've all known brethren and we've said this before but we could read you out of these scientific articles they have now discovered the scientists and it keeps getting more and more frankly every year or two but they already know that there are more galaxies i don't mean planets i mean entire galaxies of planets maybe thousands or hundreds of thousands of planets and a galaxy, more galaxies in the universe than there are people on the earth. It's just unbelievable. What kind of job does that portend for us? If we make it into the family of God and our faces shine like the sun, because this book and this coming government of God becomes a reality to us and we want to be there and we can tell our Father in heaven on our knees, fervently father we get it we know somehow you've called us i don't know why god called me but somehow he did he you've called us and you've given us this opportunity and we want to be in your kingdom we want to be in your family we want to fulfill the purpose for which you've given us life and breath and the purpose which you've called us now at this time please help us fulfill that purpose and be in your kingdom and be in your family, and literally bear your name forever as members of the kingdom of God, the government of God, the family of God, grown great. You see, Abraham was one man, and then it came down through Isaac and Jacob, and then Jacob had 12 sons, and they multiplied and multiplied and multiplied, and they became what? The nation of Israel. One man became an entire nation. And that's the way it often is, you know, in the Bible it shows that. That's the way it worked out in human beings. A whole nation came forth from certain men and their descendants right on down. So that's the way God himself is. He is reproducing himself. And we have that opportunity and it's absolutely awesome and magnificent if we can grasp it. And we will be kings and priests under Jesus Christ. Some of us may serve under King David. Some of us may serve in a sort of a cabinet-like function, perhaps under Moses. We may not all all report directly to Jesus Christ, so we better learn to report to one another now. A lot of them might say, well, I'm going to just report to Christ. I'll not report to anyone else. Well, Christ might decide that you won't report to anybody. (laughs) Frankly, you might not be there. And I might not be there if I say, I'm just going to report to Christ. No, I don't know who I report to, but I'm sure I'll have to report to somebody because I'm not one of the twelve apostles, and I'm not Moses, and I'm not of that stature, and I understand that. So I'm going to report to someone else probably. But we're all going to have to do that. But how can I say I'm going to report to them and have a good attitude about it? I know, brethren, that everyone that I might report to in the future in God's kingdom, and frankly, everyone that's there, will have gone through trials and tests and tests and trials and they will have been shaken and humbled and fashioned and molded and they will have had to have been on their knees again and again and again perhaps with tears in their eyes saying, God, help me, please forgive me, please clean me up, fashion me, help me to get over this, I want to be in your kingdom. Please forgive me for this, forgive me for that, forgive these other people who have hurt me. And have that total attitude or we won't be there. And they won't be there. So I will know whoever I report to will have a really good attitude. You see what I mean? I won't need to worry about what my immediate boss will be like. I will know in advance what he will be like. Because I've seen people of God's church go through those things. And I have gone through those things. I've seen Mr. Armstrong go through those things. I was standing or sitting right across from his desk when he got the call from Don Billingsley in her little tiny office in the little small penthouse over the library at Pasadena. I happened to be sitting there talking to him. And he said, Don, what? What? And his, he like this, and his voice was shaking and his eyes were bulging. Dick is nearly dead. Well, he's still alive, but he's in the hospital and crushed. And so I saw how he reacted. And I saw how he reacted then, and nine years later, when his wife died, and other things like that, the trials he went through, and God worked with him, and worked with him, and worked with him. And I saw how it was back in the 25th anniversary banquet, and I know Mr. Partin was there, I'm sure, in the beautiful uh, Ambassador Hall, where they had this beautiful Philippine mahogany, and... The leading ministers of God were there at headquarters. And uh, actually, some of the one or two leaders got this banquet together. It kind of a surprise party for Mr. and Mrs. Armstrong. And the mayor of Pasadena was there. And our advertising agent, Bill Scott, was there. Some outside business people, other people were there. And so after they eat the meal, they began to brag and say, Mr. Armstrong, you've done it. You've built all this. Of course, the work was tiny compared to what it got to be later. But they were trying to show how great he was. They said, you've done it. You've got this beautiful building, this beautiful campus, and you're big on radio, and you've done it. You've done it. And Mr. Armstrong began to look down. I knew him real well. I knew what he was thinking. And he began to clear his throat. And pretty soon he got up, and he very... Uh, thoughtfully at first, tried to control himself. And he said, well, brethren, I do appreciate your kind words and your thoughts, and I thank you for your good intentions. But Herbert Armstrong hasn't done anything. And he almost shook the room with it. God has had to beat me down, he said, and humble me and work with me to make me able to accomplish anything. This is Christ doing Christ's work, not Herbert Armstrong's work. And the mayor of the city and Milt Scott were thinking, what's going on? (laughs) They had never, ever experienced anything like that. They're used to flattering each other, you know, in these political meetings and so on. And I'm not exaggerating. Boy, he said it loud. And he shook the room with his voice. Herbert Armstrong has not done anything. Christ has built this work sometimes apart from me. And he had to do it, not me. And he made that very clear. So when Mr. Armstrong comes up in the resurrection in a few years, I will know that he has cried out to God with tears in his eyes about the mistakes that he made because he made some mistakes. He was not perfect, but he was an outstanding servant of God. And God will know that he has tried to overcome as I want to continue to overcome in my life. And I hope all of you continue to overcome in your life. And we will make mistakes, but we must go all out. As Mr. Crockett said, I think those who make no mistakes have a marker over their body. <laughs> they, they they are in the graveyard. <laughs> People who make no mistakes are already dead and buried. Those of us who are not dead and buried, we continue to make mistakes. So let's understand that. Forgive each other of our mistakes. But we've got to work on those mistakes. So let's try to be worthy of this coming kingdom of God and understand how real it is and how wonderful it is. Turn to Psalm 119. Here, of course, is the psalm by the man after God's own heart, King David of Israel. Absolutely magnificent words. The longest chapter in the Bible. So I won't read it all to you, believe me. We'd be here the rest of the afternoon just reading. Psalm 119, verse 1. Blessed are the undefiled in the way, who walk in the law of the Lord. See, they walk in that law. They're filling their minds with the law of God, how God operates. Therefore, they're able to rule in God's kingdom based on that law. Blessed are those who keep His testimonies, who seek Him with the whole heart. They also do no iniquity they walk in his ways. You have commanded us to keep your precepts diligently. Oh, that my ways were directed to keep your statutes. Then I would not be ashamed when I look into all your commandments. I will praise you with uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments. I will keep your statutes, he says. "O, oh, do not forsake me utterly. David cried out to God like that all through this psalm. He says in verse 97, turn on over a couple pages, very familiar part, of course, Psalm 119, verse 97. Oh, how love I your law. It is my meditation all the day. You say, oh, that's a big exaggeration. I don't think so. I think we know from the rest of the story that David had a time there in his sin with uh, Uriah and his wife where he didn't do that. But most of his life, he apparently did that, or God would not have allowed this to be in the Bible. David thoughtfully meditated on God's law off and on, not in every minute, but all day long. You, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies, for they're ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. He meditated on God's law. And, of course, he had a wonderful opportunity. Why will King David be over all ten tribes of Israel in a few years, very few years? And we'll say, yes, sir, King David. We better understand that. We weren't going to say, well, how come you made that mistake? I can't dare tell King David that. I've made hundreds of mistakes. He made one or two great big mistakes, and he didn't make near as many smaller mistakes, I'm sure, as I have made or most of you have made. He was a big man, and he had that one big mistake. But God says, only in the matter of Uriah the Hittite did David turn aside. So that's a very important thing. But anyway, David had the opportunity to administer these laws all day long for 40 years as king over Israel, seven years over Judah, and an additional 33 years over Judah and Israel, the combined nations. Forty years of making decisions involving hundreds of thousands and millions of people ultimately about god's law and he did it faithfully he did it humbly he did it in the fear of god for 40 solid years no wonder god is going to give him that opportunity once again god knows where david stands and once he has a spirit body he's not going to turn aside he's proved that deeply to god So we need to meditate on God's law. Think about all the aspects of it and how it applies to this, that, and something else. Notice back in 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel, if you would, chapter 15. Remember this story here about how God told Saul to go and utterly destroy Amalek. The Amalekites, frankly, may be a certain people today that are giving us a lot of trouble and giving Israel a lot of trouble. And a number of researchers feel that. They seem to have a vicious attitude and have had it from generations past. And they should have been destroyed, you know, in the letter of the law. And God said that. But Saul tried to be nicer than God. Well, just love Jesus and don't bother anyone. Let's just be a good guy in our own way. No, don't be a good guy with your human reason Learn to do what God says. Get that. Learn to do what God says. Don't try to outrighteous God one way or the other. So Saul attacked the Amalekites, verse seven, and, and uh, but the Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and oxen, verse nine. They didn't do what God said. And so verse 10, the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I greatly regret that I've set up Saul as king for he has turned back from following me. You see, if you start watering down what God says, God watches you and he knows your attitude and he says, I can't give this man or woman the degree of authority, responsibility later on. They're one who kind of waters things down. They have a weak character. They make excuses for themselves. And so... In God, Actually, Jesus Christ is the one, the God of Israel, who spoke to, to Samuel. And he says he's turned back. And it grieves Samuel. And he cried to the Lord all night. And when Samuel rose early, he came to Saul. And Saul said, oh, I've done what the Lord commanded. But Samuel said, no, you have not. Why do I hear the bleeding of all these animals? So Samuel said, verse 17, when you were little in your own eyes. Sometimes we're very humble when we're first converted and then we get certain jobs and we get the big head. We think we're very important. And then we start putting other people down and taking advantage of our job. When you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Eternal anoint you king over Israel? But the Eternal sent you on a mission. Why then did you not obey the voice of the ever-living One? Verse 19. Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Eternal? And so then Saul made more excuses and then Samuel said, verse 22, I want to get to verse 22, Samuel said then, acting as God's servant, has the ever-living one as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the eternal. God wants you to do what he says. Don't add to it. Don't take from it. Some of our people try to add to it. Say, well, you can't do this or that or other little tiny things that have nothing to do with anything. They try to make things too strict. And then others take from it and try to water it down in a different way. So, God wants you to obey His voice. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. For you resist. You see, there's an attitude there. And God sees that attitude. So I hope all of you here and all over the world will understand that. You've got to respond. You know, it says back in Colossians there, that don't let any man judge you regarding eating or drinking or the eating or drinking part of a Sabbath or a new moon or holy days. Don't let any man judge you but the body of Christ. And he defines the body of Christ earlier as the church of God. If the church of God makes a ruling, unless you are mighty sure, in a sense you're, you're basing your salvation on going against what the church says. If you prove that it is the church of God, then you're showing the leadership of the church, and you're showing God that you're trying to outrighteous Jesus Christ. You're trying to outrighteous His servants, or else you're watering down His servants and trying to, you know, whatever. Rebellion is the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness, as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord. It came through a human, through Samuel. He has also rejected you from being king. So, brethren, if you want to be a king and a priest, then heed that. Think about that. Learn to respond to those who are over you in the Lord and show Christ that you're responsive to Jesus Christ and you're responsive to those that he places over you and he can trust you in that way now and forever. If the church tells you to go and break his commandment directly, go out to commit adultery or commit murder or something, that's different, of course, but I don't think the church will ever do that and I think you know that true, especially those in the leadership now have been through, tried and tested through all these years. Turn back to Proverbs for a moment. Proverbs, if you would, chapter 19, Proverbs 19 and beginning in verse uh, 20. Listen to counsel and receive instruction that you may be wise in your latter days. You've got to learn to listen and you've got to learn to seek counsel. Get multitude of counsel, this book tells you. Think through every decision. Learn to make wise decisions. Get all the facts. Weigh the pros and cons. How is it going to affect you today? How is it going to affect you ten, now, uh, let's say, next year? How is it going to affect you and people around you 50 years from now? How will you look back on this decision? Try to think about it. And then get of counsel and then cry out to God for His guidance in making the decision. Listen to counsel that you may be wise in your latter days. There are many plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the Eternals counsel, that will stand. What is desired in a man is loving kindness. The margin has here, printed in my Bible, by the publisher, the Hebrew word means loving kindness. And a poor man is better than a liar. Brethren, one of the key things we all need to have, of course, the greatest single ingredient. Remember, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13, three things remain. Faith, that absolute trust in God, hope, that positive attitude, not always thinking, negative, well, it can't work out and blah, 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 going around with negativism. No, we've got to have Romans eight twenty eight emblazoned, you know, in our minds. All things work together for good, not bad, for good, for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. And thirdly, love. But the greatest of these is love. And if you learn to have loving kindness, you will be so much better off as a king, a priest, a leader, then if you have technical knowledge and you're too strict and you're ready to catch people, hurt them, put them down, make them feel bad. So think about it in your own mind and heart and try to be objective. How do people respond to you? How do people respond to leadership, whatever leadership you may have? Do you hurt people? Do you put them down? Do you make them feel uneasy? Do you make them feel sad? You will not have a very high position in God's kingdom if you do that. You've got to have loving kindness. That is what is desired. And God tells us that, of course, so many different ways throughout the whole Bible. Chapter 20, Proverbs 20, verse 18. Every purpose is established by counsel, by wise counsel, wage, war. Back during the crisis of the split we had with the board, I counseled with many, many of the leading men, not just the men that were close to us right there, but others as well, and got their counsel. And a number of them wanted me to act real quick before the feast that year, but I sensed it wasn't time. And some of the older men did say, no, it's not time, wait. And we did wait, and when we did act, then we had about 70% of the church come with us right away, and eventually another 5 or 10% came. We had to wage war, spiritually speaking, as you know, at that time to hold the church together and to be able to do the work the way we're doing it now. Verse 26, a wise king sifts out the wicked and brings the threshing wheel over them. You say, well, that's not love. Yes, that is love. If you put a man in a job or a woman in a job where that person is oppressing others and the people are miserable and they're hurting then you are responsible for hurting those people. So even though the man or woman in a job may be hurt temporarily by being removed from that job, you see, you're showing the greater love by getting them out of that job so they don't hurt others, the king or the ultimate ruler, whoever that may be. So you've got to think these things through if you're going to be a king. Yes, you've got to be willing to take action The spirit of a man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all the inner depths of his heart. God looks on her attitude. Mercy and truth. The next verse, verse 28. Mercy, that's the first thing he mentions. Mercy and truth preserve the king, and by loving kindness he upholds his throne. So again, a king is to have truth. He is to have wisdom and get multitude of counsel, but he is to have loving kindness. That is one of the greatest qualities he can possibly have. Now turn back to Colossians, if you would. Colossians chapter 3, brethren. The third chapter of the book of Colossians and verse 1. Paul writes, If then you were raised with Christ, if you come up from the watery grave of baptism, seek, go after it with your whole heart. Seek those things which are above. Have your mind on the place Jesus said, I go to prepare a place, a job, an office, a position, and He is preparing that position for you and for me. He is seeing, you see, where Mr. Ames fits. He is seeing where I will fit. He's seeing where Mr. Crockett will fit. He's seeing where Mr. Apartheid will fit as He watches each one of you. He's seeing where some of you ladies will fit, where you will best fit in God's government in tomorrow's world. He's preparing that place. We need to seek God's kingdom. That real responsibility, that real future with all of our heart. Seek those things above where Christ is. Have your whole heart in that. Make the kingdom real. You have a job to do. It's coming soon. Where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind, what should you be thinking about? Of course, you have to think about the daily things through the day and support yourself And sleep, go to bed at night and get up in the morning and brush your teeth and do those mundane things. But underneath all of it, underneath and behind and permeating all of it, is I want to be in God's kingdom. I want to have a good job. I want to learn every single lesson God wants me to learn. And I want to truly humble myself. I want to truly reflect Jesus Christ in everything I think and everything I say and everything I do. And I want to fulfill the purpose For which God called me. So set your mind on things above. Not on things on the earth. For you died. And your life is hidden with Christ. Your old self should have died. In that watery grave of baptism. When Christ who is our life. And God grant that he will be your life. And my life. That's our motive. Our reason for being. When Christ who is our life appears. Then you also will appear with him. In glory. So let's do that with all of our hearts. Try to prepare the way Christ would have you prepare to be a king or a priest in the coming government of God. The real kingdom or government of God soon to be set up on this earth. Let's get ready.